0: as we conclude our series called Paul and the Road Ahead. We have looked extensively at the Apostle Paul. Paul was originally called Saul. We talked about Saul, who, which means the great, was transitioned to Paul the little. He went from someone who was puffed up and believed in himself to now recognizing that righteousness comes by grace through faith alone, right? In Jesus Christ and being transferred from one kingdom to a new kingdom, and we then tracked much of the Apostle Paul's life. You see 13 out of 27 New Testament letters are written by the Apostle Paul. They're penned at the hands of Paul. So you're talking about half of the New Testament uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Greatest missionary, right, at least in the known world, um, when you look at uh, the context of Scripture. And today, as we think about the final message of the road ahead, Paul was clear in his communication throughout the epistles of what we call the parousia, the second coming of Christ. Every year in December, we celebrate Advent. Advent is the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ is something we also should celebrate. Not only have we done series here, the book of Revelation you can find on our podcast or SoundCloud, but we've talked many, many different series about what we call end-time things. This in a theological word it is called eschatology, the study of long end-time things or the study of end times. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to begin reading just the passage verse 3 and 4 and 8 and 9 and then we're going to jump back to the Old Testament. 2 Thessalonians again chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. Paul said, "Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day, he's talking about the day of Christ will not come If judgment will not come until rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, also called as the son of perdition, also referred to as the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, the Apostle Paul said. We have just now entered into one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible to translate and to find true interpretation. All right, He goes on and says he's going to oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the Antichrist, the ministry, if you will, of the lawless one. Verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. Come on, somebody. you talking about a mighty God. It's one thing to be strong. It's another thing to be mighty. Two different things, okay? Uh, Revelation would pick up on this, and John would say it this way. Here's how John would say it. John said Jesus will speak a word, and a sword will come out of his mouth and cut him down. Amen. Okay, but the, but the text here says that the breath of his mouth, what's this? And destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is the second coming. The coming of the lawless one, notice this, will be in accordance with how Satan works. Meaning, if you can understand how Satan works now, you'll understand what he's going to do in the future. There's no ingenuity with Satan, Same tactics in the past, same tactics in the present, same tactics in the future. It's going to help us tremendously. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders. And what do they do? They serve the lie. They serve the lie. Now, when you start thinking of prophecy, when you start thinking of end times reality, I know some of you in this room, you love that kind of stuff, all right? Be honest, show of hands real quick. Who is really, really excited today to get into some prophecies, okay? Just go ahead. Yep, cool, awesome, safe place. Who wishes we would have just gone on with Paul's words about righteousness and you could just, you could just take end times and prophecy? Come on, just raise your hand. I'm raising my hand for both of them, okay? I've told you the church I got saved in, um, they capital L loved end times prophecy, okay? So if you ever had an annual prophecy conference, It was the best attended event of the year, and our pastor, you know, literally made rapture jokes like there was no tomorrow. (laughs) Did you catch that? So we had charts, right? In the Pentecostal Charismatic Church I was in, we had charts showing end times you know, which ones of the beast most likely represented FDR and which one most likely you know represented Bill, you know, you know, Gates and which one was actually the reality of, you know, JFK and Jimmy Carter. I've I've heard throughout the years there's two ways, two surefire ways to fill a church. One is to preach on sex and one is to preach on the end times. And it started making me wonder what would happen if I preached a message on the question, will there be sex in the end times? And so we're thinking as we're preparing for our next year's series, we might do a long series on sex in the end times. I, I don't know if that's the case. But, but worth considering today are two chapters tucked away in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8. For those of you who are part of this church, you know Daniel has captivated me for about four or five months. I've taught on it in every context that I could teach on, word for word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And when you get to Daniel chapter 7 and 8, you make a shift. Daniel chapter 1 through 6 are all about the history of Daniel and his and his friends in Babylonian captivity. They chronicle the history. 7 through 12 are all kinds of visions, okay? Okay. And let me encourage you just from the outset, prophecy is a major part of your Bible and my Bible. In fact, 25% of your Bible is prophecy. So let me say it this way. For every single scripture you find in mention of Christ's first coming, there are more than eight about his second. Okay? So if you make a big deal about Christ's first coming, you need to make eight times the deal about his second coming. Okay? That's just in... That's just a in, in, in sheer number of prophecies that we find within the text. So there's a lot of Bible in here. There's a lot to engage. Now, I want you to understand as we read these chapters that, of how the book of Daniel is set up. So the first half of the book, again, chapters 1 through 6, it chronicles the adventures of four Hebrew immigrants, teenage boys that are living faithfully in the midst of a hostile culture called America, Babylon, um, where they had been taken captive, where they had been pulled out of Israel and taken to this Babylonian reality. Well, Daniel shows us how it's not only possible to survive, but to actually thrive in that kind of environment, to shine like stars, as the text says. Well, these first chapters of chapters 1 through 6, catch this, are written not in Hebrew. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. You know what they're written in, chapters 1 through 6? They're written in the language of Aramaic, which was the language of Babylon. Why you, Why does that happen? Because the focus is on shining out there in Babylon. So Daniel, when he's writing the book, is saying this is how you shine in America. This is how you shine in their culture. This is how you, not at home, Hebrew people, but in exile, this is what you do. This is how you live. This is how you focus your life. Well, chapter seven, amazingly, shifts back to the Hebrew language because these prophecies that we're gonna read are specifically given to God's people to prepare them for the future. So listen, prophecy in the Bible is not to be spoken to the lost. Prophecy in the Bible is written to the saved. Prophecy in the Bible is written to the redeemed. To tell us, hey, here's a picture of the future. This is how you should live in the present. This should, again, hindsight's 2020. You're able to look out in the future and recognize this is what God is doing. They're not so much messages for people out there as there are messages for people in here. In fact, you'll notice that up until now in the book of Daniel, the dreams in the book of Daniel have been given to pagan kings. The first six chapters, they're all dreams to pagan kings. And Daniel, guess what? Is not the dreamer. Daniel is the interpreter. But now you you get a shift. Daniel becomes the dreamer and the angel Gabriel becomes the interpreter. And that's what you get the whole rest of the book. But these prophecies are for God's people to teach us to look at the future as a way that we are able to now shine in the present. Now, let me ask you as you just consider, I want you to consider from the outside of this message, when you think of a word that characterizes your attitude about the future, would that be stressful stressful? Or peaceful. When you think about the future, when you think of the reality of the future, are you the kind of person who's just always depressed about what's going on? You're addicted to cable news, you're cussing at every anchor person, you're always griping about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you're always depressed about the kid, you know, about the world, we're leaving our kids. Are you the kind of person that, you know, finds himself hating, I mean, absolutely hating the way that other people voted last November? You can't stand the way that they voted and particularly if they call themselves Christians and so you and your mind are like, how could anybody be so dumb, how could anybody be be so stupid and you find yourself always internally, whether you do it or not, trying to troll somebody else, trying to figure out what somebody else is going to post, what somebody else is going to get living all kinds of just nasty messages, right? Or are you the kind of person who when you think about the future, you still, yeah, you understand and we should think about the future, but you still have a sense of optimism about what God is doing in the earth. Do you have a sense of optimism about what he wants to do in his church? And get this. You even love those who voted the other way. You might strongly disagree with them, but you, you love them. So in a word, what characterizes your attitude about the future? Stressful or peaceful? The reason I ask that is because Daniel's prophecy makes the difference between those two attitudes. And it's going to be carried over by the Apostle Paul and carried over by John, the revelator as well. In chapter 6, Daniel was 80 years old. Daniel chapter 6. Now if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 7, we're going back about 15 years to Daniel's mid-60s. He's somewhere around 65. There's a lot of detail in this chapter. Daniel's dream has bears and leopards with wings and talking horns and a, and a chariot with wheels of fire. And when you first read all of that, you might be concerned like Daniel might need to be drug tested, okay? Okay. But I want to show you that when you go through these details, it's throughout these details is this simple flowing message that weaves through it. So hang on. Don't get overwhelmed by the details. There are going to be things today. It's going to be a lot when you're reading the visions. You're going to be like, what in the world? Just hang on. I promise. And i make this promise to I'm going to make it really simple for us at the end. Okay? I was telling someone this week that reading these chapters 7 through 12, they remind me of the Disney World ride, It's a Small World. And that ride, in many ways, is an assault on your senses. You know what I'm talking about? And when you go through, the, it's a small world. Everywhere you look, there, things are spinning. And you got individual scenes over here. And then you got somebody talking over there. And, and then you got images over to your left. And then images up to your right. And, and every direction. And you're thinking, have I gone to music hell? You know? Like, what is going on right now? And yet, in the midst of that whole ride, what do you have? A river moving you through it. And there is one song that is displayed and being played. And if you'll just sit and not get off the ride, if you won't jump off on the other side, if you won't get out of the boat, guaranteed you will make it to the end and you will be singing that song in your head the rest of the day to the point that you might need a psychiatrist to deliver you from It's a Small World, right? That's how Daniel 7 and 8 is. That's how the book of Revelation is. It's an assault on your senses. Here we go. Daniel 7 and 2, Daniel said, In my vision at night... I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. you got to understand, anytime you see sea in prophetic literature, you're talking about the world. Okay, Sea is the world. Four huge beasts come up out of the sea, each different from the other. Four are coming up out of the world. Now, in the Old Testament, beasts, of course, and this is important, are metaphors for world governments. So anytime you see a beast in Scripture, that's a metaphor for a government. So we're looking at four kingdoms coming up out of the world. Let's continue. The first was like a lion... But had eagles' wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, and its feet like a man, and given a human mind. This, my friends, is Babylon. If Take notes in your Bible. I want to go ahead and write that this is Babylon. The wings getting torn off represent God humbling Nebuchadnezzar to make him go insane. If you've not read, brush it up on Daniel. He just got done eating grass for seven years like a cow. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar was literally went insane. You say, what happened? He lifted up off the ground and he was given a a human mind, which represents, if you read chapter four and five, he comes back to his senses and he has a conversion. You read that in chapter four. Daniel is just painting the picture of what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is Babylon. Verse five, suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. And it was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Watch this, between its teeth. And it was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. The bear represents the Medo-Persian empire, Medo-Persian empire, which conquered Babylon like we saw Uh, In chapter 5 of of Daniel, it's amazing. The fact that the bear is larger on one side than the other represents the fact that Persia was bigger than the Medes and they eventually took them over. So the bear is lopsided because Persia was stronger than the Medes. So in the Medo-Persian Empire, Persia overtakes Medes, takes them down, it becomes the Persian Empire. Verse 6, after this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. Here's the third one. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and it was given dominion. The third animal, by the way, church, represents Greece under the leadership of a man named Alexander the Great. The fact that it's a leopard with wings represents the communicated speed at which Greece overtook the world. I've told you before, Alexander conquered the entire known world before 29 years of age. He conquered everything. He was swift, it was a leopard with wings. He overtook everything that was known in the ancient Near Eastern world, the Mediterranean world. He was an incredible warrior. I think most historians would prophesy that he was the great, or or communicate he was the greatest warrior to ever live. He brought with him for instance one time only 35,000 soldiers to Persia's 100,000. So you got Mercedes-Benz Stadium plus 20,000 and then you got 30,000 going up against that, right? And yet he wins magnificently in that battle if you study history. Persia in that ba- battle lost 20,000 soldiers. Guess how many Alexander lost? 100. He lost 100 soldiers. They lost 20,000 soldiers. Per- po- Persia was on their own home turf. You don't beat people that badly on their own home turf, but Greece conquered the known World, We're gonna see why that matters in a minute. The four wings, you say, what's up with that? The four wings with the four heads is a prophecy that in Alexander's kingdom, that it would be divided between four generals. That happened, by the way, after Alexander won, it was divided in this this power struggle, so to speak, this battle between four of his generals. We're gonna talk about that more in a minute. Verse seven, after this, suddenly, that's Greece, fourth, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, watch this, and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed. It trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it. Watch this. And it had 10 horns. This fourth beast is Rome. This is the Roman Empire who would conquer the Greeks. It has iron teeth. What is iron teeth? It represents Rome's incredible strength. You say, Craig, what are the 10 horns about? Well, horns in the Bible usually represent power, right? They represent the ability to damage something. That makes sense, right? Raise your hands if you have an animal, a pet at home, any kind of pet at home, okay? Dog, bunny, hamster, fish, okay? Some of you still have cats. I'm not sure why, you know. <laughs> They're like Satan himself, but you, you may have cats, okay? So, you know, you, you have these, right? Do your pets at home, do they typically have a horn? No, unless you grew up in Tennessee, okay? Some, some people up in Tennessee have pets with horns. But no. Now think of some animals with horns. Think of a bull, a ram, a rhino, dangerous animals. What ha- what happens when an animal without a horn like your bunny runs up against an animal with a horn like a bull? Well, the horn wins almost every single time. So these horn nations represent conquering nations. Prophecy's not hard to understand, right? Y'all got it. You see. You see how simple that is, right? The horn nations conquer. They always defeat. They always overcome the lesser nations, the lesser entities. Now, so far, this vision is tracking. They're going to show you an image of Nebuchadnezzar with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. Okay, This is the four kingdoms, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. Okay, You see, it's tracking. But then all of a sudden, this new detail gets added. And this is important because this detail wasn't found in chapter 2. Are you ready for the detail? Look at verse 8. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, what's this, a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. If you hear those booms, by the way, they bother me too, but I'm going to get through them. It's probably the CrossFit gym doing and dropping big tires and flipping them over. All the more reason why you give more money for us to get in the building. Come on, thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Amen. Okay? Here I am building people spiritually, and they're flipping tires over here, building biceps. Verse 8, while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them. Three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly in this horn there were eyes. Watch this, like the eyes of a human and the mouth that was speaking arrogantly. So out of Rome, remember the fourth beast, comes this little horn. This is our first prophecy of the Antichrist that we find in Scripture. Notice Daniel says that this little horn has eyes like the eyes of a human, but it says like. This is a simile, our English majors, right? It's not that it is human eyes, but it's like human eyes. They seem human, but when you look into them, you see something different. I want you to think for a moment like the horror movies when you look into the killer's eyes and you see something, but it's not human. It's demonic. So this is the way that the text can communicate something very demonic happening out of this little horn. It's like human eyes but it's not human eyes. And he, watch this, the Antichrist had a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. He boasted and blasphemed against God. Now, that's chapter seven. We're gonna move now to the vision of chapter eight because it comes at the same thing from a different angle. And then I wanna draw some conclusions from both visions. We're gonna ask Paul how he interprets this. Chapter eight, this time, this vision is about a two-horned ram and a goat where basically the ram gets pulverized by the goat. Watch this, verse 5. The goat came towards the two-horned ram and rushed at him with savage fury. He struck the ram, and the ram was not strong enough to stand up against him. Now, the two-horned ram is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and the goat is of Alexander the Great, who, again, we talked about was one of the most successful conquerors the world has ever known. Verse eight. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. Watch this. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively out towards the south and the east. That is isn't. That is so key. It grew towards the south, and it grew towards the east, towards the beautiful land. We're going to see what that beautiful land is in just a minute. Verse sixteen. And I heard a human voice, Daniel again, calling. Gabriel explained this vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down, as do everyone falls into cataleptic states when angel or the divine you know visits humanity. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. Verse twenty one. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. What's the first king? Alexander the Great. The four horns, verse 22, that took the place of the broken horn, represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Get this. Alexander died in his early 30s. Most people say of alcoholism. So he conquered the world and died in his early 30s. The large horn was broken. Why? because it was arrogant. It was lifted up. When he died, there was a vicious power struggle between four of his generals, and that's what greatly weakened Greece's power. By the way, can I just say right here, Daniel wrote all of this over 200 years before any of this happened. You need to understand when you're reading prophecy, you're not just talking about vague prophecy. This is specificity to the nth degree. This is 250 years before this is happening and he's telling you exactly what Alexander would do. He's telling you exactly what's gonna happen with Greece. He's telling you exactly what's gonna happen with these four different generals. God communicating this 200 plus years before it ever happened through Daniel's writings. Verse 23, near the end of their kingdoms when the rebels, some of y'all are like, whoa, I'm telling you, I'm gonna make it simple. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king Skilled in intrigue. If you're a parent, you better listen up. There is a roaring lion, and he is deeply skilled in intrigue. That's how he's defined. He's skilled in that. Fully dece- deceitful. Watch this. Will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and his influence. And his own mind, he will exalt himself, okay? He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be broken, watch this, but not by human hands. He will be broken. The Antichrist will be broken, but it will not come by any human ingenuity, okay? God will put him in the ground, in of Joseph of Amerithea's borrowed grave and show humanity he is dead and nothing you can do to get him out of it. And there's no human ingenuity that can come up to get him out, but God will what? He will break the back of this lawless one. What? Through his own hands, not by human hands, but by one word out of his mouth. Okay, this, this, These verses are so specific. He goes on. Out of these four horns of Greece, a ruthless small horn would arise that would be especially cunning and violent and especially vicious towards God's people. Now, let me explain something to us, all right? Sure enough, around 170 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, got a picture of Antiochus, Epiphanes, he rose from one of the four sub-kingdoms of Greece and he set set out on this huge violent campaign or conquest for himself. Verse 9 prophesied that the little horn would aim his conquest towards the south and the east, which would have been, from Greece's perspective, what? Egypt and Israel, which is exactly what he did. The specificity, again, of this prophecy is amazing. And as Daniel prophesied in chapter 8, what did he say? He was ruthless. You know what Antiochus Epiphanes was called? He was called the Hitler of the Old Testament, all right? That's in history how he's known. Did you know in one day he murdered 80,000 Jews upon entering Jerusalem? He first got all the women, then he got the kids and slaughtered them. He took women, put their kids in front of them, and slaughtered them at the same time and watched them die. 80,000 in a day. He issued coins with his image. They have a picture of it, of his image on the coin that read, King Antiochus, God in the Flesh. That's what it said, God in the flesh. And top of it all, he set his statue up in the Holy of Holies and he made the Jews worship him right in the middle of the temple. He takes his own statue, puts it in the Holy of Holies. It is almost... And then he made him eat swine flesh right there in the temple. This, This is... In the Jews' mind, it's impossible to describe the offensiveness of what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 170 B.C. This is what Scripture calls the abomination of desolation that you see in, in, in Daniel. Okay? You see it repeated again in the book of Revelation. And then out of nowhere, guess what he did? After he had everybody worship him in the temple, he developed a stomach virus, went insane, and died. Just like Daniel predicted, he did not die by human hands. He died by whose hands? God's hands. Okay? He died, instantly just perished. By the way, A lot of these events that I'm talking about today are recorded in what we call the Apocrypha. That's that little section of the book, uh, of books that are contained in the Catholic Bible. That's why the Catholic Bible is bigger than your Protestant Bible, right? And in the Catholic Bible, what we call the intertestamental period are the Apocryphal books. Those books are not scripture. They've never been deemed as scripture, but they do give us beautiful pictures of the history of what's happening. But amazing, actually, history in them. The point is, I want you to see it's safe to say that Antiochus Epiphanes was the specific fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel. But, 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 let me show you something really interesting about how the later Bible writers treat this prophecy because it teaches us a very few important things about prophecy. If you've never heard this before, I want to introduce it to you today. It's called the double fulfillment of prophecy. When you're reading prophetic texts, there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There is what we see happening quickly and what we see happening in the long term. Now, to be a good student of any prophetic literature, that, that lens has to be used every time you read the text. So, let me explain. First, even though the events of Daniel 8 were clearly fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, both Jesus, I'm grateful for that, and John the apostle, and Paul, who lived some 200 years after A.E. I'm going to call him A.E. Antiochus Epiphanes is hard to say over and over, okay? So A.E., 200 years after A.E. died of a stomach virus, Jesus, Paul, and John would take that scripture and Daniel. And even though he had clearly fulfilled the prophecy, they all used Daniel 7 and 8 to point to something still to come. Let me go ahead and say something really bold. In fact, you could say the whole book of Revelation is built on the prophecies of the two chapters you and I just read. All of the prophecy in Revelation comes from Daniel 7 and 8. Now, that makes sense because Jesus obviously would have known that. Paul would have known that. And John would have known that this has already been fulfilled. Yet they still use that text to communicate about something That is to come, which leads us to point number one. If you're taking notes or looking on your card, the prophecies about the Antichrist are already not yet fulfilled. The prophecies of the Antichrist are already not yet fulfilled. It is, again, double fulfillment. For many prophecies, there's both a near fulfillment and a far one. And the near fulfillment gives you a picture of the far one. And so a lot of times Old Testament prophets talk about fulfillments as if they're one, but they're separate. separate. And once you think of it like this, maybe this will help you a word picture. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains, when you go to the Rocky Mountains, you can stand on one peak and you can look off in the distance at another, what looks like one mountain with two peaks. And it looks like that. It looks like you got two peaks on one single mountain. All right. But if you want to travel to them, you would see that in between these peaks that look like one individual mountain are actually two mountains separated by dozens of miles. But you don't get that until you get up close to it and you're standing on this peak and you realize there's a huge valley before you get to that peak. From a distance, they look like one. But when you get up close, they're actually separated by a great distance. That's what Old Testament prophecy is like. That's exactly what it's like. The Bible presents these peaks together, but when you get there, they're two different ones. The Bible communicates them as if you're looking in, again, the long scope, and it looks like one reality, but ultimately, Antiochus Epiphanes was a picture of what the ultimate Antichrist would be like. So in in, in essence, the AE was the pre-runner to the Antichrist, meaning we can learn about what's going to happen in the future by looking at the history. And we can understand what is happening in the world by understanding what are what has happened in the past. Okay? I'll give you an example of this in the passage you and I started with today. Paul, Second Thessalonians two, he talks about what? The future Antichrist. And how does he do it? In terms that are so similar to Daniel chapter eight. Listen to it again. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving the lie. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. You see it? This is all Daniel chapter 8 imagery. A future antichrist is coming, Paul said, and he'll do the things that A.E. did. By the way, what is very interesting to me is that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., And it's not been rebuilt yet. Now, there's talk about it all the time, but there's not follow-through yet. But passages like this imply that that will, or it will happen eventually, and that the Antichrist will aim for it. The Antichrist is going to aim to sit himself there, to place himself there. My point is that the prophecies of Daniel 7 and 8 are both behind us and before us. They're in our rearview mirror and they're in our windshield. A.E. was the first fulfillment. The Antichrist is the ultimate fulfillment. The first one, A.E., sets some patterns which will be fulfilled by the second one, which leads me to our second point today, which might be more important even than the first one. Here's point two. In every age, in every age, i.e., especially our age, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. In every age. The spirit of Antichrist is at work. I call it Satan's spirit, it's however you want to phrase that, the spirit of Antichrist. Notice what the Apostle John says. Can we read John? 1 John chapter 2, notice what John says. He said, children, it's the last hour. It is the last hour then. Folks, if it's the last hour in, in 85 AD, what, what kind of hour do you think we're in in 2021? Okay, well, where are we at on the clock? If it was the last hour then, where is the hour now? And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come past. It's already happened. Even as one is coming, John says, Antichrists have already showed up. Even though the ultimate Antichrist is coming, the spirit of Antichrist is already here, which means we can learn from what we see in these chapters of what to expect in our day. Let me give you another example of this. In In Mark chapter 14... Fascinating, Jesus on trial. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus. Aren't you so glad Jesus takes the Old Testament text? It brings so much strength when I read these texts because he considered them inspired. And so when he uses them as inspired literature, it's amazing to me. And what Jesus does in his own trial is he takes Daniel 7 and 8 and he applies them to his own trial. Go read the text, Mark 14, even though he lived hundreds of years after AE and thousands of years before the ultimate Antichrist, he said to the Sanhedrin, you guys are playing the role of the beast and the Antichrist in that chapter, and I'm playing the role of God's people. That's what he says in Mark chapter 14. And he said that even though that even though he was hundreds of years separated from the AE or from the ultimate Antichrist, which means if Jesus does it, we can take the principles of Daniel 7 and 8 and learn about what our enemy's doing now. So if Jesus can do it then, we can do it now. That's faithful Bible interpretation. That's faithful scripture interpretation. So Craig, what does the Antichrist, what is he about now? Well, this is the body. This is what I want you to, feel saturated in. Three things that I want to see from the text that Antichrist is up to now. First of all, number one, chapter 7, verse 5, he aims to devour much flesh. That's not hard to believe, is it? The number one objective of Antichrist spirit is to devour people. Devour flesh. Destroy people. How do you look at things like the Holocaust and just chalk that up to, to merely human evil? I don't think there's anybody who's honest. I don't, you take, you take a liberal arts institution, you take some of the greatest historians in the world, and you really have a heart-to-heart conversation with them and ask them, is it just human ingenuity that can murder six million people? Nope. Adolf Hitler flunked out of art school. He developed some nationalistic leaning, and the next thing you know, he's marching six million Jews towards gas chambers. You don't do that, folks. That's not human ingenuity. That's not a human coming up to rise to power and all of a sudden devising such a wonderful scheme. And I say wonderful in terms of evil, right? A scheme to destroy these Jews. There's something there more than human cruelty. It has the eyes of a man. Behind it, though, is something demonic. People say, well, that's naive. Well, if you think that's naive, I think you're naive. I don't know how else to say it. That's not naive to believe that this demonic realities. I've reading, started reading back through a biography, and it is fascinating to me of the demonic oppression that Adolf Hitler went through when he was by himself. Have you ever studied the history of what he happened at nighttime? Uh, most of the people that were closest to him say his voice was not even the voice he used ever in public rallies. It's a totally different empowered voice, just something altogether distinct and separate. And you think about this eyes look like a human but something much deeper. The 20th century has seen so much moral and technological advancement, but still it was the bloodiest century of all human history. I mean, even things that we don't ever talk about in history class, like in 1915. Did you know the Turks in Turkey? They came to believe the Armenians sharing their country with them were actually a problem, and so they set April 24th, 1915, as Armenian liquidation day, and they murdered 600,000 Armenians in cold blood in one day. 1915, one day, 600,000 people. The Japanese declared a Black Friday during World War II where Japanese troops went through Alexandria Hospital in Singapore and they bayoneted all of the patients, doctors and nurses and kids in one single day. In 1932, uh, Joseph Stalin... He executed over 10 million of his own countrymen and starved another 7 million to death through enforced grain quotas. So 17 million people. Now, again, history, what do we do? And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we only talk about the Holocaust, 6 million people. We don't talk about the 17 million people killed by Joseph Stalin alone. We have Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, King John, the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, and all of that where? In the last 100 years. Antichrist. Devouring flesh, destroying people. Can we not see Satan at work today in the abortion industry? Yes. Or the slave trade? Or the myriad of places around the world where oppression is celebrated and religious liter- liberty and basic human dignities are denied? The spirit of Antichrist, which has the eyes of man, but it is actually much worse, has as its aim the devouring of flesh. And let me make it personal because we like to talk about it out there. Do you know what? The Spirit of Antichrist is out for you. He's out working in your life to create addictions, ruin your marriages, ruin your relationships, and lead you to self-destruct. That's his one aim. That's his one desire. So the first thing he does is he devours much flesh. Here's the second thing Antichrist does. Verse 25. I'm not making these up. These are right in the text. Verse 25, chapter 8. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence and in his own mind. He will exalt himself. So he questions God's word, that's deceit, and he exalts man. That's the second and third thing. Second and third thing of the Antichrist is deception by calling into question the word of God, and number two, exalting man. Okay? He's at work everywhere trying to get you to question the Bible. That's his other two agendas. He's in university classrooms, he's in entertainment studios, he's in newspaper offices. He's in corporate boardrooms. He's in social media platforms. He's making people question God's word and he's puffing up our obsession with ourselves. Listen, I'm not saying social media can't be used for the kingdom. I think it should be used and employed to leverage for the kingdom, but the devil, I'm not saying he created it. The antichrist loves social media. It is about the exaltation of self. Do anything you can to separate people from true community to exalt themselves, get themselves higher, 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 and higher. So he employs any and everything of, Humans and reality and whatever we do as a culture to try to do all that he can, again, to d- designing to magnify our self-obsession, which is his calling card. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not, listen, hear me, I'm not trying to say you go try to cast a demon out of your college professor or cast a demon out of your phone or out of the, the bird app, Twitter or Facebook, okay? All right, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying, though, he's at work in those realities, doing everything he can, okay, to try to deceive people against God. You say, well, but, but I'm just questioning what the Bible says about sexuality, Pastor Craig, and I'm trying to find myself. No, you're not. You're playing with hell, and you submit yourself to the Word of God. You're playing with hell. That's what you're doing. I don't know how else to say it to the generation that we live in that destroys people and is out to destroy people and out to devour flesh and to cause you to cause into, into consideration and question the Word of God and the authority of Scripture. It is nothing other than the spirit of Antichrist to do all they can to try to deceive people, to in that last way cause a great rebellion in our day. We, in those moments, are exalting ourselves and we're putting our thoughts about, above God's thoughts. That's what we do when we say that. So there are two paths, and I want you to hear me, but I want you to hear me clearly. I make no apologies about this. There are two clear paths. There's the path of the truth, which is God's word, and the other one is where you do what is right in your own eyes. That's the only two paths you have in life. Because, listen, the only other path is the path of the Antichrist where you decide what is right for you to exalt yourself. It's either submission to God and his word, regardless of what that means. to my circumstances, reality, challenges, difficulties. And then there is the choice that I make for me. This is God's word, the Bible. It comes down from heaven. God has given us the text. It exalts God. So what we are called to do is to humble ourselves before God, before his word. We're doing all that we can to try to change the wrong thing. The Word of God is not meant to be changed. It's meant to change us. It's meant to transform us. So in our age, we can expect to encounter the spirit of Antichrist. And the three things that we're going to find are devouring flesh, deceiving you, and causing you to exalt yourself. Devouring people, deceiving people, and causing self-exaltation. That's it. You say, well, that's depressing. Here's the bad news. We can expect these things until the end of history. Yes. I want to go ahead and tell it. you, it's not going to get better. Yes. If anything, it's going to get worse in that context. Yes. But I've got an encouraging word for you this morning. i got some really good news too. Because here's number three. Even in the age of Antichrist, the Ancient of Days still yes. rules. Yes. <laughs> yes. Even in the age of yes. opposition. Yes. Even in the age... Where he's on a short lease, the enemy, the prowling lion, the ancient of days still rules. Let me take you back to Daniel chapter 7 and show you this because Daniel, again, it's not going to be a stressful outlook, it's going to be a peaceful outlook. Show you what Daniel says in the midst of all these prophecies. It's so dark, folks. I mean, you read through 7 and 8 and it's like, whoa, I mean, just dark images and destruction and judgment. And then you look at verse 9 of chapter 7. As I kept watching, everybody say, keep watching. Yeah, you can't just look one glance, right? You're gonna be discouraged," he said. "You got to keep watching. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. It's impossible to read text like this. His clothing, and we have to preach these things, was white like snow, and the hair of his head was like whiter. That's that's wisdom. His throne was flaming fire. I love this part. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000s to 10,000s stood before him. The court was convened. And the books were opened. Here's God in wasn't planning on this in the midst of all this craziness and here is the lord calmly taking his place as judge by the way can i just say how much i love that name ancient of days god i love that name i'm about to start singing right now so you know what song i'm about to sing (laughs) tony tony out right now I'm, i'm ancient of days next sunday it reminds me of a phrase by the way we parents use when we when we when our kids try to pull something on us one of my you know one of my kids comes up to me and says hey dad say just for illustration purposes just for illustration purposes is there a way to get out a dent out of the front fender of a car <laughs> is there? Is, just for illustration and what do you do what do you say as a parent what did you do well i mean pff, i never said i wrecked the car i never said i did anything like and then what do we say to our kids we say kid i wasn't born yesterday what do I mean when I say that? I've been around the block a while, and so I see right through your ruse, right? We tell our kids, I wasn't born yesterday. God leans into the backseat of human history and says, I wasn't born at all. That's what he's saying. That's this text, Ancient of Days. That's what his name means. I wasn't born yesterday, friends. Actually, I had no beginning, and I got no end, Right? In other words, nothing gets by him. Come on, this is good news this morning. Nothing surprises him. God never learns anything. He never misunderstands anything. Nothing ever catches God off of guard. There's never been a time he wasn't fully in charge. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's the ancient of days. He's the lily of the valley. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the righteous judge. All he does, he does and performs in righteousness. Righteousness. And notice what the text says about him. His hair is white like snow, which means he carries authority and the wisdom of the ages. He's able to walk. His clothes are like white, like the purest wool, which means he's pure and he's wise in his judgments. He never makes wrong mistakes. He never makes uh, wrong decisions. He righteously judges, is what God says. And notice what it says. He, his clothes being purest wool, his righteousness altogether is without the slightest blot of imperfection altogether. what's this. His throne blazes in fire, which means it consumes all that's before it. He alone is worthy to judge the nations and that's what he's about to do in Daniel 7. So sit down, little horns. Can't you hear, Daniel? Sit down, little horns. Greatness is in the room. There is no game of thrones in this game. There is no game of thrones. There's only one throne that's gonna be occupied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is in the room. You sit down, little horns. The one God is about to speak. You open your ears, little horns. The day of judgment the day of vindication has come. By the way, you know what I love about this text is that God's throne has wheels and they're on fire. How cool is that? If you grow up like a monster truck, this is like a big tricked out monster truck, all right? God is sitting on a tricked out monster truck, all right? Maybe, maybe, but what I think it is communicating is that the ancient of days is not stationary, uninvolved in the things on the earth, separated by us from a great distance. His throne has wheels, which means he goes to where his people are and he doesn't have to get off the throne to get there. He just takes his throne right up into your situation. His throne's got wheels. He can just roll his wheels and throne right into your situation, and he's not separated by his authority. He's not separated from what he desires and what his rule and reign and the jurisdiction of his kingdom. No, no, no. This is a judge who sits on a, on a tricked-out monster truck, one with flaming wheels. This is Daniel's vision in the midst of... Babylonian captivity. Now imagine if you were in Israel at the time and you're looking up to God because we think we have it bad in the 21st century. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to minimize it. Think about if you're going through all this kind of exile. You're looking up to God saying, "What are you, did you, you You saved us? You redeemed what, God? What, what is going on, God? But I want to show you something. It is so interesting to look at how all of the events that Daniel predicted, which seemed so dark at the time, actually ended up working out for the furtherance of God's purpose. Can I give you just a few minutes? Just just think about this. For example, when Persia took over Babylon, did you know that Persia actually rebuilt Jerusalem and the Jewish temple and they paid for it and everything? The temple would be crucial for Jesus' ministry and for Jerusalem. Guess who paid for it? Cyrus. So God used what? Persia overtaking Babylon for whose good? the church is good god's people is good let me give you another one then god raised up greece guess what greece did they united the world under one trade language it's called koine greek koine means common it's what your new testament's written in which made it easier for the gospel to spread rapidly throughout the world with the writings of the apostles because everybody would know the same language you tell me that wasn't in god's providence and desire and sovereignty to know that the gospel could be spread now because greece alexander the great overtook the known world. Then guess what happened? God raised up the Romans who built a system of roads that made it possible to transport for the gospel from place to place. Had there not been Roman rule, there would be no roads in which the gospel would find and leave that fertile crescent and spread throughout the world. You know what Paul did? He summarized all of this in Galatians by saying when the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his son into all this mess, in all of this mess. So in all of this challenge, in all of this difficulty, God was creating a perfect situation for the coming of the Messiah and the spread of salvation around the world. What is my point? My point is this. God does everything, 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 everything for his purposes. He can use anything in our lives that seems to be even origin, an or, having its origin outside of God's desire or God's design, you think he can use it for his good. And more good news. That's true of your life too. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it is for the glory of God. What he does with the big picture, he does in the small. What he does in grand scope of human history, he does in our individual lives. Every disaster on earth, the planet God is using in ultimately to move his church forward. I didn't say he was the author of it. I said he uses it, every bit of it, in every tragedy, in every difficulty. God uses it to move the church of Jesus Christ forward. I was reading again the text this week in Revelation chapter 1 where John the Revelator is on the island of Patmos and Jesus shows up behind him. He hadn't seen him in about 50 years, has he? And he turns around and he falls like a dead man. And the Bible says that when he looked at him, Jesus... John tells him, he said, in his right hand, everybody say right hand. He held seven stars. You know what those seven stars are? They represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. And what God was saying right there, Jesus was saying to John, I know it looks horrible back in in Asia Minor. I know it looks challenging. I know it looks like the church might be extinguished. I know it looks like the gospel might be extinguished because of all the persecution. But you gotta know right in the midst of the turmoil, guess what Jesus is holding in his hand. He's holding the churches. Do you see what that shows us about what we should be about? Let me say it again. And I ask it again. Do you see what Jesus holding seven stars shows us what we should be about? If this is what Jesus is doing on earth right now, he's holding seven stars. If Jesus right now in heaven has seven stars in his hand, what what what's in your right hand is what you're doing? That's what the text says, right? So anytime you see in the text any someone holding something in the right hand, that's what they're about right now. So if all the seven stars represent the seven churches, which represent all churches everywhere, and they are in his hand, and they are his father. Focus. You know what? That should make us say that's what we should be about as well. We should be about the Church of Jesus Christ. We should be about what God is doing in the earth. Now, I, listen. I want to say this without apology. I want to say it boldly because I sense the Spirit of God telling me. I know not all of you are, are called to work in the church like I am. I know you're not all called to be fivefold ministers. But if Jesus shed His blood for the church, and what is in His right hand right now is the church, it ought to be the center of your life. It ought to be the center of your family's life. It ought to be the center of what you're doing. It ought to be the center of what you're desiring. It ought to be the center of your ambition. It means you should not be a religious spectator that shows up on the weekend for a religious pep talk. You ought to be involved in seeking the mission. The time is now. The judge is seated at the door, ready to judge. We should be about what Jesus is about. If Jesus put his blood in it, you should put your life into it. If Jesus gave his life for it, we've gotta give our lives for it. And listen to me, the point of revelation is not to give you details for idols speculation about Christ's second coming. The point of Revelation is to motivate you to give your life to make sure everybody knows about the first coming. So if all we do is is sit back idly, contemplating and pontificating theoretical realities of the second coming and not be motivated to go tell people about the first coming, we've missed the point of why the text has been written. See, the first time he came bringing salvation, the second time he comes, he will bring judgment. And not everyone on the earth, and even our city knows about the first coming which means they're not yet ready for the second coming the gospel is only god knew good news if it gets there in time the gospel is only good news if it gets to people before the time of judgment and john says he's coming back soon and every single eye will see him all eyes will see the judge i read a story this week that reminded me of that come on jesse It's the story of how a man named Dawson Trotman started a ministry called the Navigators. In the late 1930s, this is fascinating, follow with me. In the late 1930s, Dawson, uh, again, Trotman, he was working at a Texaco gas station in Lameda, California. And he had just escaped going to jail for trouble and he got saved in the process. He got born again. And he started ministering to two young sailors that were frequenting his gas station. And every time they would come into his gas station, he started explaining his testimony to them and told them that if they would trust God. He said, I believe if you'll trust God, God could save you like he saved me. And these are rough men. Well, these two sailors called two more and they began this little Bible study right there in the, the service station of the gas station, right? At one point... He told them that he believed. He writes this later on in his story. He told them that he believed that God wanted to use them, those five people, to change the world. And I said, How crazy was that? But he just said, I, I really believed it one day. God wanted to use four sailors, you know, and one dude, one ex convict, so to speak, to change the world. Well, eventually, he and the first two sailors were saved. The other two eventually get saved, and these four sailors say, They say, Dawson. If you'll quit your job at the gas station, we'll donate part of our salaries to make you a missionary on our ship. All right. Now, these sailors didn't have any money. So basically, they were just inviting him to our ship. They said, just quit your job, Dawson. You can come and, and do Bible study on our ship. We've talked to our captain, and he said, you can do a Bible study on there. Well, six months later, okay, this is... a to me, amazing. There's been a hundred conversions on that ship and twice that many meeting for a regular Bible study called the Navigators. The name of their ship, by the way, church was called USS West Virginia. And just a few months later, after the Bible study got going, the name of that ship, the USS West Virginia, got redeployed to a place called Pearl Harbor where it was sunk on December 7th, 1941. 1941. And all of them went down. Sounds like a tragedy, right? And it was a tragedy, Pearl Harbor. But all of those sailors, the ones that, say, that they were saved, that had started that navigator Bible study, got redeployed onto other ships. And by the end of the war, there were 800 ships that had Bible studies led by the navigators. These young men came back to the United States and under the GI Bill, they were spread out around universities all across the nation and they started Bible studies on campus. This resulted in a formation of groups called InterVarsity and called Campus Crusade for Christ. That's what happened. When these men, five men in a gas station, were deployed onto a ship and the tragedy happened, God used it for the further advancement of his kingdom and his glory. And in a presentation years later, Dawson was talking about his ministry success and he said that the need of the hour, this is what he said, he said the need of the hour is just to believe that God is good. And then in the end days, Paul in the road ahead is just to believe he's the ancient of days that he sits upon the throne and he will be true to his purposes in all times and all places and he will be true to you if you're obedient to his will. He'll be true to you to your dying breath. And this is what he said. This is this is him. Dawson said, God's calling us today. God's calling to us today is to recognize that our circumstances, as difficult as they may as as hard as they may be to understand, do not counteract the eternal truth that our God sits upon the throne and He does what He intends to do. He will use everything to further His purpose. Saints, God's doing the same thing in your life. When you study Scripture, you realize God is up to hundreds and hundreds of things in our lives, and at any given point, we're only aware of about two or three of them. He's up to thousands of things in your family's future. You know about five of them. Maybe three of them. And even better, fourthly and finally, Daniel tells us one day, the God who rules over the world will come to rule in the world. He would come around here. Verse 11, as the band comes, I watched. Then, because of the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, suddenly, like one, like a son of man, <laughs> everybody say, son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven, Daniel said. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given, given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. One day, church, the God who is working in history invisibly will come to assume the throne personally. And in that moment, the power of the Antichrist will literally evaporate in front of him. The power that devours flesh, the power that deceives people, the power that causes self-exaltation will literally vanish. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, What does he say on that day, the Antichrist? He will destroy the Antichrist and all his armies with just the breath of his mouth. John in the book of Revelation says he does it with just a word. And all Daniel says about the defeat of the Antichrist is that it happens not by human hands. <laughs> That's what he says. It happens not by human hands. For in Antiochus Epiphanes, it was an invisible stomach virus that killed him. What mighty armies couldn't do, God used a microscopic virus to get in the lining of his colon. And it ultimately killed him. The defeat of antichrist ultimately doesn't happen through a stomach bug, of course, but it happens through doing something that human ingenuity could never do. It's when a dead man got up out of a grave on a Sunday morning and he walked victorious. It's when Jesus was vindicated by the Father being raised from the dead. Jesus was the Messiah, church, who came to the lion and the bear and the ram and the goat of the world's kingdoms with their mighty horns of power, but he didn't come with the horn of his own, church. He didn't come with the little horn of his own. He would have come as a dragon. Revelation said he could have come with all power, but he instead not came as a dragon. He came as the weakest animal. He came as a lamb. He came in the midst of the one who had all horns. And he said, I'm not taking on a horn. And he allowed himself to be gored by them. The nations of the world gored him with their horns. Why? So that he would go into a grave and pay for the penalty of sin for every one of those nations. And then on the third day, he would be raised to newness of life. Jesus, Jesus, through his resurrection, broke. Satan's power and the power of death, so that now the word of the gospel is mightier than any horns of oppression and chains of captivity. The gospel is a stronger word. So I'm going to close the two applications. Number one, the church. Number two, for the person who may not know Jesus in the room. Number one, if you're in the church, when you see the secret behind history, I've heard it said, when you see the secret behind history, it may not keep me from pain but it will keep me from panic. I might experience fear in the next few years, but I don't have any need to feel frantic. I might feel the fear, but I don't need to be frantic because the ancient of days is still on the throne and the God who rules over history will one day come rule in history and He's moving everything in the world and He's moving everything in your life to that end. That's encouragement, saints. That's encouragement. So, it, so be encouraged. Every setback will ultimately be used for the advancement of His glory. Can I get honest with you? The cancer be used for His glory eventually. Broken marriage could be used for His glory. The wandering child can be used for His glory. The chronic pain you're in, chronic pain day after day, used for His glory. The frustrating lack of promotion within your job, God's good hand is in all of it. It may look dark to you, it may seem dark to you, but it's all flowing by the hand of God. And when the fullness of time has come, God will bring forth Jesus out of your messed up situation. He will will bring Jesus and the light and the glory of God in every situation. So church, we have something to do in the meantime. Before the Antichrist and after Antiochus, between Antiochus and the ultimate Antichrist, we are to preach the word of the gospel. We are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. We are a dot on this great timeline. Let me just hear the, the sound of heaven, the alarm clock of heaven, to realize where we're at we are a great dot on the timeline we live in an age of mercy and light God desires all men everywhere at your job all your neighbors to be saved and to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and no weapon formed against you shall prosper and all of those who rise against us will one day fall that all authority he said has been given unto me therefore go in the world and make disciples this is the age of the church this is the time to spread the gospel this is how our success will be judged Are we making disciples? So that's the application for the church, but the application for those who've not fully submitted to Jesus. The goal of the enemy through the Antichrist and all the little Antichrist is to destroy your faith and destroy you. And it's happening to some of you. Sin hadn't turned out to be what you thought it would be, and it's been devouring your flesh, eating your life. He controls the world, Satan devouring deceiving, exalting man, and mark it down, he's going to make it progressively harder to be a Christian. The world's going to get worse before it gets better. The lions and the bears are going to oppose you. If you're looking for the affirmation of the world, you're never going to find it. I'm not saying there's people in the world that are not good, but, but if you're looking for the affirmation of the world, you're not going to find it. It's not They're never going to celebrate you in godliness. They're not going to celebrate you for that. They're not going to celebrate you for good decisions that you make in your school. It's not going to happen. There's a reckoning that's coming that's going to separate false Christians, half-committed Christians, from real Christians. Where are you going to be? If that scares you, you can give yourself fully to Christ right now and admit, you know what, I can't save myself and I need Him to do the saving and I want to submit fully to His authority. You can do that.